Hello, my name is Richard Fern of the University of Warwick, and I'm here today with Dr. Dan Joyner of the Department of Law. Uh, Dr. Joyner is an expert in, in international law, particularly those aspects that are appertaining to the current crisis in Iran and their, uh, their renewed attempts to, uh, to gain a nuclear foothold, either for peaceful purposes or for military purposes, depending upon how you look at it. Dan, could you just talk us through this? Could you just tell us how this all came about and, and, and where we now find ourselves? Sure. Uh, I guess we can start with... Uh the revelations by uh, Iranian opposition groups in late 2002 uh, that Iran had a number of sites uh, in which facilities which uh, were involved in the process of uranium enrichment that it had not declared to the IAEA. <clears throat> and uh, eventually, in, in early 2003, Iran did... Uh, Acknowledge the presence of these sites, and it, it has come out that those sites had been operating had been operating for some eighteen or twenty years uh, clandestinely uh, because Iran had a safeguards agreement, and this becomes an important point for later. A safeguards agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency, under which it was supposed to report all uh, <coughs> fissile material activity within its territory, and so. When it was discovered that these sites existed at which some uh, enrichment research and and other sort of processing work had been going on, uh, it was pretty clear that there had been a breach of this safeguards agreement. And in fact, fairly you know, a pretty clear and robust uh, breach. Yes, I mean they had been <coughs> hiding a major nuclear program from the world for eighteen years. That's correct. In the face of everything that they had promised. That's so correct. naturally enough, the international community hmm. went off the deep end. They did. It was it was a, a huge revelation, and uh, Western countries particularly were very alarmed that this had gone on. And and also, of course, it was it was a bit em- embarrassing in a sense of the IEA that uh, they they didn't know about it. Although you, know, you can't blame the IEA too much. They they only operate on the information they're given by states, and they can't be expected to to find things that are that well hidden. But in any event, that, uh, that's what happened. And, and they were declared by the IAEA board to be in breach of their safeguards agreement. So mm. that, is, that was a breach of, of their international obligations, correct. So from that time until recently, the IAEA board has taken uh, you know, a particular interest in Iran, as have uh, nations in their individual capacity. And uh, nations in the West, particularly the United States, <coughs> has been pushing this agenda to uh, to get Iran to take steps to restore international confidence in their uh, their intentions because again it was a breach of their safeguards agreement to not reveal the the presence of these activities these facilities Iran maintained however that even though it had not told the world about these these sites that all the work going on there was only uh, in, toward developing uh, Energy resources, uh, nuclear materials. Uh, yeah, Dan, you're processes. a lawyer. Come yeah. on, there's a thing called reasonable doubt here. Yeah, surely yeah. beyond reasonable doubt, you don't keep you don't keep a a uh, a program secret, top secret from mm. everybody for 18 years. If all you're doing is developing civil uses, you just don't. And more to the mm. point, civil uses are available on the open market anyway, so you don't need the research. Well, it's, it is more complicated. I hear what you're saying, and this is certainly an argument that the United States uses. The, you know, if it was 
completely for peaceful means why did you keep it hidden? Certainly, uh, there's some persuasive force in that. I'm from the Iranian side. I can I can imagine them uh, saying that we just didn't want people sort of snooping around and knowing about these places while we were conducting this research. It's essential to national security and, you know, energy security is important. Uh, and it's just to not raise suspicions. But again, I, I don't think that's a, a sort of a touchdown argument coming back either. So there is some suspicion certainly raised by the fact that they they kept it a secret. So at some point, the UN put, not, not, not the UN, hmm. the, uh, the international agency concerned put yeah. seals on the on some of the the canisters yeah. and stuff that was being Iran eventually agreed. Now again, so what the the IAEA board then passed a series of resolutions and and states in their individual capacities, pushing Iran uh, to to enact confidence building measures, so to speak. Not that they were necessarily formally required to do this under their their uh, <clears throat> their commitment their international obligations, but the resolutions of the board asking them to enact certain measures such as stopping enrichment activities and enrichment research and uh, and and putting seals on their facilities in order to uh, regain international confidence but I want to this point that the Iran always maintained that even though they had kept these sites secret, all of the research and the development was going toward the production of energy and so even though they they had breached their safeguards agreement, Iran maintains and this is a pivotal point. Uh, Iran maintains that they have not breached their obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, 1968, which is the cornerstone of, of the whole regime. The, the, the NPT is, is really the foundational legal document here, and the IAEA is only really a monitoring and inspections agency that is supposed that is tasked with monitoring uh, states' compliance with the NPT, and safeguards agreements are really only a sort of a, a procedural guarantee that states are keeping their NPT commitments, because the NPT commitments uh, essentially are that non-nuclear non-nuclear weapon states like Iran can have uh, access to. Uh, fissile materials and uh, and nuclear related technologies in order to uh, have energy programs they can do that uh, but they are not to have weapons development programs to paraphrase so Iran maintains that fundamentally they are not in breach of their international obligations under the NPT even though they were found to be in breach of the safeguards agreement this becomes a critical distinction though as we go forward because again the foundational legal instrument is the NPT and Iran maintains that it has not breached that. And in fact, the IAEA has never found in its resolutions that uh, Iran has breached the NPT. This is something you hear in, I remember reading uh, uh, Jack Straw's comments uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about Iran having breached its, uh, and I'm pretty sure he said NPT uh, obligations. And I, I remember thinking that's actually not correct and that this may be sort of a misconception among among mm. political leaders that of what Iran has been found to have breached only their safeguards agreement, not the NPT. There is no evidence in any, any IAEA report, and Mohammed Al-Baradai, who is the Secretary General of the, or the Director General of the IAEA, has said that uh, Iran has not breached its NPT agreement that there's any evidence of. There is no how evidence can, of that. How can we possibly be sure of that, bearing in mind the instability of the region and the fact that... Um, <coughs> Pretty confident the, the Iranian prime minister is on record as saying all of the, well, some of the things he would like to do for, for to instance, for, to, to Israel. Oh yeah, he's 
Must give us all call, for, all call for concern. Absolutely, he's bad news. Ahmadinejad is a, I think, is is a travesty for uh, for Iran. I mean, uh, under uh, the pre- previous president Khatami, there was sort of a decent level of cooperation. Ties, relationships were not good between Iran and the West, but there seemed to be sort of an ongoing uh, relationship and uh, cooperation with the IAEA. Uh, at least to a substantial degree, <clears throat> and uh, since uh, Ahmadinejad has come into office, there have been sweeping changes in the Iranian government, leading to a hardline position on lots of things, and his own comments about Israel have been just tragic, really. And, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. there have been calls to bring Iran before the UN, the United Nations in order to question their membership in the UN uh, because of those comments, because it's it's really directly and I think this is correct, directly in breach of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which says that no state shall threaten the territorial integrity of another state. And so that's, that's a different matter. That they, they are in, Their membership in the United Nations is in question. Now, this is a separate, but I'm, I'm only saying that, yes, it, it is bad that he has come into office and said the things that he has said. Well, clearly it isn't separate, mm. because comments like that must right. inform no, that, the decision-making true. processes of the likes of Jack Straw, for instance, <coughs> when they're trying to wind... wind trying to find when they are trying to find a way forward as they a political matter certainly it would come into consideration in a big way uh, I guess I, I only want to try to separate things though so that the the politics doesn't completely take over the, the law and the principle involved that uh, you know what, what Iran is saying now as we come to the sort of later in, in the road here the question becomes now should Iran be referred to the UN Security Council. That's really the question of the day now. So the positions are that the United States and and uh, and now this morning we find that the the rest of the permanent five uh, agree that Iran should be referred to the Security Council because of the suspicions that even though Iran claims that all of its work is for energy, nuclear works for energy, that the suspicion is even without evidence that they have a, a weapons development program. And so on that basis, wanting to refer them to, to the Security Council. That is the point at which I think that uh, Iran is, is correct in that there is, there is very little legal argument for, for doing that on the basis of them having a weapons program. Mr. Larijani, who is the chief Iranian nuclear negotiator, right. went on TV, Iranian TV this morning and said... Informing the Security Council or referring the Iranian case to it will bring an end to diplomacy, and that is not at all positive. I think that's probably the understatement of the year, isn't right. it? Absolutely. Uh, so, okay. So, if we talk, so to, sort of talking about law there, in the sense that Iran, there is no evidence that Iran has breached the NPT. They have breached the safeguards agreement, and on that basis, the IEA board could legitimately refer them to the Security Council. But again, that's old news. We've known about that since 2002, that they'd breached the safeguards agreement. So it seems like that's not really the reason for referring to the Security Council now. The reason now is, again, uh, <coughs> suspicions of a, of a weapons program, so that, which there is no evidence of. Now let's talk about sort of the politics of it. What would happen, then, uh, politically, if they were referred to the Security Council? Well, they have said, categorically, and actually they passed a law to this uh, to this. Uh, extent, that if they are referred to the Security Council, they will cease all cooperation with the IAEA. That means no more inspections, the IAEA inspectors get kicked out of the country. 
I think that's quite serious because up to now, again, the relationship hasn't been great between Iran and the IAEA. But there has been substantial cooperation. Iran signed the IAEA additional protocol allowing for uh, SNAP inspections. SNAP, I mean short notice inspections. And, uh, and inspectors are in Iran. There's been seals on facilities. And Iran has cooperated with the IAEA. That would end categorically, they've said, if they're, if they're just referred. Now, if sanctions are imposed, Iran has said that they would uh, take actions to, uh, to hike up world oil prices. This is also quite serious mm. for the world economy, which is already suffering under high oil oil prices. Now, again, those are s- sort of some of the costs. But okay, there's going to be cost to anything, uh, and, and of course, uh, also along, among the costs is just the the chill in, in relations that it would have between Iran and the West. Uh, you know, the the EU three that have worked with Iran a lot. You might see a, a, a formal cut off of diplomatic ties there, which would be detrimental. And also, I, I think that Iran's position uh, with regard to Israel um, and uh, some of its other sort of foreign policy positions might only serve to be entrenched by a referral to the Security Council. Because that, that's what tends to happen when you know, a state like Iran that is, is a bit reclusive anyway, if, if it perceives that the rest of the world is sort of ganging up against it and starting to play hardball, a lot of times they will not sort of Make take measures to go along with what the rest of the world is saying. They will, in fact, in, entrench uh, <clears throat> their 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 policies and and become more uh, more extreme. So I think that there's there's a lot of downsides to referring around to the Security Council. Again, on the basis of no evidence that they have breached the NPT. Now, what about possible outcomes to referring to the Security Council? Okay, so maybe there's cost, but maybe it'd be worth it in the end. This is what maybe the Americans would argue. There might be some cost, but it, might, it would be worth it in the end. Well, what would the Security Council do? Are they going to impose economic sanctions on Iran? Well, again, Iran says if they do, they'll hike up world oil supplies. But what if they, if they do impose sanctions on Iran? Sanctions have a very bad history of, of actually influencing state behavior in the short term, meaning they don't seem to work very well. In the long term, sometimes you can you can strangle a country into, uh, and this was the case with Iraq, that it did significantly hamper their ability to produce weapons. But in the short term, which is certainly what we'd be looking for, uh, th- there's sanctions seem to be a pretty blunt instrument and pretty ineffective. So I don't think that that's a very useful option for the Security Council. Uh, the other possible avenues for the Security Council I- include military force, Chapter 7 resolutions to military force. I mean... I'm saying this is the sort of the spectrum of possibilities for the Security Council, but no one is seriously talking about that in the case of Iran. Uh, you know, as as they've said time and time again, Iran and Iraq are completely different cases, and there is no history of uh, <clears throat> uh, Security Council resolutions authorizing force as there was in Iraq. And uh, and I think that no one is seriously considering the military option in Iran. Things are stretched too far as it is in Iraq and, and Afghanistan for that to be seriously considered. So if you have these sorts of options essentially off the table or, or that I think would be imprudent, you just you ask what would be the purpose of referring to the Security Council. One answer that I've seen is, uh, well, the, 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 sort of the, the authority of the Security Council itself would be enough to change Iran's position. I, I find that argument dubious. I, I just don't think that there's any uh, sort of precedent for saying that 
if all of these countries unilaterally, sort of each of them, are saying, we don't like what you're doing, stop it, uh, the IEA board says this to Iran, and that referring to the Security Council would make any real difference, that the authority of the Security Council would make some difference, I, I just don't buy that. I don't think that it's... Uh, that it has any, uh, there's no pre precedent for that, really, that the authority of the Security Council alone in commanding Iran would change its mind. Mm -hmm. So again, I guess what it all boils down to is I see that referring to the Security Council, there's a lot of costs and very few recognizable benefits. So bearing in mind that your analysis forbids a, a, I don't know, stepped escalation, mm. what are you recommending? This is one of the hard cases, of course. I mean, we, in international politics, we can't assume, for one thing, that doing something is always better than not doing something. I think we, sometimes doing something can be worse than not doing anything, although that doesn't sound right to us. It sounds like we ought to be able to do something about this. But sometimes, and I think you could see that in Iraq, I have to say, that uh, there was a thought that doing something in Iraq would be better than doing something at all. Well, I'm not sure that we're seeing that being played out. Perhaps not doing something would have better than, been better than doing something. Anyway, <clears throat> in the case of Iran, I, I personally feel that it needs more time and that w there needs to be more diplomatic efforts to try to uh, bring Iran more into the fold uh, a bit and, uh, and try to increase ties. But more time also to let the inspectors do their job under a, a more cooperative framework than would be the case if Iran was referred. Let the IAE inspectors continue uh, their inspections and working with Iran to try to get disclosure. But hang on a second. We started this discussion mm. by saying that for 18 years they mm. kept our program secret. So mm. what exactly is it that you think that these inspectors are going to succeed in doing in the uh, space yeah. of, what, six months, 12 months, 18 months? Well, At what point does Iran say, pop up on the scene and say, hey guys, we've got two bombs the size of the ones that took out Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. and Tel Aviv have been annoying us for a little while now. You're right. No, that's absolutely a possibility. That the, and the IEA inspections are not a silver bullet. They're not necessarily going to find things. I think that they, their, their presence does put some limits on what Iran is able to do in a sort of an overt way that uh, with the inspectors on the ground... There's a limit to what they can do, and the, and the transactions costs of keeping, let's say hypothetically, they do have a weapons program, the transactions costs are higher with the inspectors in the country to keep it secret and keep any information from leaking out, whereas if they were gone, it would be a lot easier to progress more quickly with a weapons program. But as you say, it could still happen, certainly, that they could pop up one day, as North Korea recently did, and say, we've got them, <laughs> and what are you going to do about it? Could happen, certainly. But again, uh, I, I would hope that in time that there could perhaps uh, emerge more evidence of this weapons program. Because again, I, as an international lawyer, I am troubled with the idea of uh, trying to prosecute an offense, so to speak, without any evidence of it. There is no evidence they breached the NPT. It's all suspicion. And I have to be reminded of the suspicions that led uh, to the Iraq War, which uh, were eventually f found to be unfounded. I mean, this is a legacy that's not going away. You know, the, the the fact that the war in Iraq, which is a massive foreign policy initiative, was uh, was waged on the basis of faulty evidence is a legacy that's not going to go away. And I think that now when we hear these sorts of arguments, 
You know, there's no evidence that we can actually show you to objectively scrutinize, but we know that they are doing this. You've got to take that with a grain of salt and to not take major foreign policy initiatives on that basis. And so, again, uh, to, to wait for evidence to come forward to try to work with Iran and also to hopefully try to work with the Iranian people, uh, information into the country to help them to liberalize their government, it, just in the hopes that things will get better. The NPT is, a, is an historical event from 30 years ago. Why are we still getting all uptight about it now? Uh, I mean, the NPT itself has always been, you could <coughs> call it one of the least principled agreements there's ever been, in the sense that all, what you had was the you know a, a group of <coughs> countries that had nuclear weapons saying that at this point in 1968, we want to freeze things and have us have weapons and everybody else not have nuclear weapons. In exchange, we will guarantee that you will have access to energy supplies, nuclear, um, you know, nuclear technologies for energy. But it was just, it was just a deal that they made, uh, and there was no real sort of principled norm about it. And so, uh, you know, if, when you do hear, as you say, uh, these countries that have vast arsenals of nuclear weapons and developing new generations of nuclear weapons all the time, sort of nitpicking about Iran's having or not having nuclear weapons. It's only based on that original bargain. North Korea, of course, has, has pulled out of the NPT. And, you know, one, one wonders that eventually, if Iran feels that there's sort of more harm than good of maintaining its, uh, its paper commitment, at least, to the NPT, whether they will do the same thing, and whether the NPT regime is essentially shooting itself in the foot by playing hardball based on... Uh, lack of evidence and suspicion. So are you pessimistic about what's going to happen now? Well, I have to say that I am. I I really am, I don't know, so surprised, I guess, because I just, I feel that the politics here just doesn't work out. Uh, it's just imprudent, I feel, to refer Iran on this basis to the Security Council. And I fear that if they are referred, which it now looks like they're sort of a chain of events in motion, it looks like they probably will be, and there's no guarantee, but when the IAEA board meets, if they are referred, what Iran has said is that they'll cut off relations with the IAEA and relations will sour. And I, I personally, I fail to see what good is going to come out of this, that uh, their position will, will just be to sort of entrench themselves and uh, it'll just be the stalemate as it was sort of with Iraq in the 90s, let's say. There's just sort of a stalemate in which they're a pariah state, everyone else is against them, and yet there's really no... Uh, uh, there's no real movement forward. Uh, and, whereas, again, in Iraq, if if perhaps cooler heads had prevailed uh, <clears throat> and the war had not begun, there there might have been other options for doing something about Iraq, too. So I think that, again, we, we have this uh, sense of urgency sometimes. We feel we need to do something. Uh, but in international politics, that's not always the right answer. And that you ha there is something to working through other sort of less uh, less aggressive means. Okay. Dr. Dan Joyner, Department of Law, University of Warwick. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.